Hello, I'm Huron Zani and welcome to Tales of Baroque. Indeed, welcome back to this podcast where you'll join me and my esteemed guests each episode on a fabulous dive into the Baroque world, its characters, composers, politics, places, popes, kings and queens. Today, for the first time since talking about Vivaldi's Venice and Harps in early 2020, I'm joined by Senior Lecturer in Musicology at the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music, Dr. Alan Maddox. For our first episode of 2021, Alan and I are going to explore the music of George Frederick Handel, the influence of Baroque Italy on his career, Corelli, the Concerto Grosso, and all things Handel's Rome in preparation for what should be a bright and brilliant opening series with Paul Dyer, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, and indeed the Brandenburg Choir. Hello, Alan. Lovely to have you with me today. Hi, Hugh. It's lovely to be back after quite a while. Yes, indeed. The last time you and I were at a table together was to talk about Vivaldi's Venice and the harpist Xavier de Maistre, who delighted us in February and March 2020. Yeah, it feels like a long, long time ago, doesn't it? (laughs) And tell me about, I suppose, a little bit about what your thoughts are about this program and and um, the music yeah the theme of the program of course is Handel in Rome and yes. uh, so the Corelli and the Handel Dixit Dominus fit perfectly into that Brescianello is a slightly different question but it makes a really nice contrast with the Corelli concerto so we can hear the difference between the two types of concerto the mm. concerto grosso and the solo concerto that we get with Brescianello which is just slightly later mm. uh, so what's interesting about this I think is seeing where Corelli has come from his uh, training and upbringing in Bologna, which also is a connection with Brescianello, um, and uh, then how his career developed in Rome, and uh, when Handel arrives there as a young man uh, later on, how Handel then kind of slots into this musical life that's going on in Rome, which was a bit different from what it was anywhere else in Italy, mm. or and certainly different from what Handel had grown up with in Germany. It's hard to imagine nowadays when we look back at, at um, these these places and. We, we have an understanding, an inherent understanding of nationalities and Italy is a nation, you know, and, and back then it certainly wasn't the case and each state, each major city had its own way of doing things. And, uh, and you know, that, that, that certainly did have an effect on employment for musicians and, and the sorts of music that was being made. What didn't it? Uh, certainly did, yes. And, uh, yeah, it's important to remember that uh, both Italy and Germany were not individual com- countries at the time and didn't become so until late in the 19th century. Uh, so when Handel grew up uh, in Halle, it was um, part of Saxony and not uh, a country of Germany as we know it today. It was just one of uh, quite a few countries that made up the German-speaking region uh, and likewise Rome was and Rome interestingly is uh, at the time was not only the seat of the church uh, it was ruled by the Pope but not only in his capacity as head of the church but as uh, a temporal prince he was the king of his own little country the papal state which included Rome of course but also some of the other areas uh, of central and uh, kind of central northern Italy in this period so that's part of why the, the kind of politics of what's going on at the time becomes so interesting because mm. the Pope is operating both as a church leader and as a politician, effectively. And and I can't remember the specificities of it, but it's still the case that the Vatican City is indeed its own entity, isn't it, within uh, the Italian it the, state? The Vatican City is essentially the rump of the, the kind of remnant of this uh, 
country that, that the Pope had, the Papal State. Uh, so it's only now very tiny and it sits within the city of Rome, but it mm. is still officially a separate country. Backtracking maybe a little bit, um, and you mentioned obviously Harlow and, and Handel. Do we know why and, and perhaps how Handel decided to leave uh, Hamburg and, and uh, travel to Italy? Because he was in Hamburg before he left for Italy, he wasn't was, he? yeah. And uh, it's one of the really interesting things to compare Handel and J.S. Bach, who were born in the same year, so 1685, had very much the same kind of training. Both of them went to a church school, and the system, uh, it was the system that um, most German professional musicians went through. Uh, the Lutheran schools all had a, uh, an attached, uh, were attached to a church, and so the system was that musically talented boys, particularly those from poorer families, could get a scholarship essentially for their, to cover the costs of their education in return for singing in the church choir, playing in the orchestra and so forth. And mm. so from the, the boys' point of view, that was a pretty good deal because you got not only free education and board and so forth, but also uh, if you were in one of the better schools, uh, a really excellent music education. And I could also imagine for those boys like obviously Jazz Bach and Handel that were clearly prominent and gifted musicians even from an early age. I can imagine being in those environments where uh, all of the most wealthy of the aristocracy as well as the most important figures of those towns and cities were coming to church and it was a centre of activity. They were immediately already in the spotlight and uh, connecting with some of these figures. And is that a part of how Handel ended up being invited to Italy? Well, there is something in that. In some of these cities, like um, Leipzig, for example, where uh, where J.S. Bach finished up, um, uh, was uh, not an aristocratic town but a university town. Uh, and similarly, when he was um, uh, going through school, he went to school in Lüneburg, which didn't have its own aristocracy, but it was ruled by the Duke of Zella, who was uh, whose main seat was not far away, but he would come and visit from time to time. And uh, so there, those kinds of connections could be quite important. In the case of Bach, um, the Duke of Zella was very keen on all things French. And so when he came to town, he brought with him his French orchestra. And so this is where Bach, as a young man, would have learnt the French style, which otherwise he would never have got to hear. And so similarly, Handel um, would have been exposed to whatever music was going, on with uh, people visiting Halle and so forth. But essentially the experience and the, the, uh, the, the, what was important about that experience for those musicians was in their kind of uh, high school uh, age period, in their teens, they were getting this excellent education but also getting lots of experience of performing day in and day out mm. in church. And um, listeners will probably know the story of how J.S. Bach, for example, when he was working in Leipzig, was not only the director of music for, for the city, but also a teacher in the school. And officially, his job included teaching Latin and all sorts of things, which he, he did his best to get out of. Look, I, I, music, I don't know how he would have ever had the time to do that, given all the music he was writing as, as, as well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and uh, the story of J.S. Bach, which listeners probably know best, is uh, gives a good indication of the kind of uh, training that people like Bach himself and also Handel would have had in their own youth. So, for example, when, when Bach was himself a teacher then in, in Leipzig, um, his job included writing a new cantata for church every week uh, and training the boys to sing it. So he had essentially the school choir and orchestra plus a few um, musicians of the town who he could call on and they had to learn a whole new cantata from scratch in a few days. Uh, he would finish writing it maybe on Wednesday. They would rehearse Thursday, Friday, uh, maybe and uh, the boys had to also copy out the music themselves because they didn't have 
printers or anything at the time, of course. And uh, on Sunday morning, they'd be in church at uh, 6 a.m. to perform the new cantata. Yes. So that kind of constant new repertoire all the time, everything that they did. Uh, almost was was new. That's a slight exaggeration. There was a kind of standard repertoire of some motets and things, but the mm. main pieces of music they were doing are new all the time. Mm. And so that training that that somebody like Handel got in that environment meant that uh, they um, were singing all the time, playing all the time. He learnt the keyboard. Handel learnt the violin and also the oboe mm. because they had to be versatile. Uh, so. That training meant that he had not only a really good grounding in music theory and so on, but a lot of, of uh, experience as a performer and uh, a knowledge of all the different instruments and how to play them and how they worked. So he could write for different instruments really effectively because he'd played them himself. And this is what I think we can see with um, composers like Handel, who, as you say, first and foremost, had this magnificent musical training and ge more generalised musical training across all areas of music. Uh, we see these, uh, these works being produced, even from an early age, of such magnificence and, and control uh, the, the understanding of the instruments, the, the combinations of, of ideas, and, uh, and most of the time with Baroque music, I'm not sure if all of our um, listeners would be aware, but we generally see uh, essentially a very simple stave compared with modern orchestral music where all the instruments have their own individual lines. We can see often just you know a, a, a first violin part, a second violin part, an alto part, and then a continuo part. And on four simple staves... Um, the uh, inherent indications in terms of who was to play when would have maybe done, been done in rehearsal or through the process, um, annotated just with, with a, a couple of words on, on a manuscript. And, uh, or indeed often not written down at yes. all because, uh, because so much of the music was new when it was being performed in both Germany and initially particularly, uh, it meant the composer was nearly always there when the performance was being done. In fact, he would commonly be at the harpsichord. Yes, and, and so who better to, to make the decision on the spot than the man who's got the melody in exactly. his head? Yeah, there's no reason to uh, to write in a lot of things on the score because it could all just be discussed or, or it was done uh, on the basis of uh, kind of common assumptions because people are working in this style all the time. They know how the, this kind of music goes. You would just be able to, to scan the score and go, okay, it's an allegro, it goes like this, it's an adagio, it goes like that. This one is in a dance form. It's supposed to clearly feel like a saraband and we know how a saraband goes. So you don't have to write in a lot of loud and soft, fast and slow and that kind of thing on the on the written music uh, and if in doubt you just ask the composer because he's there at the harpsichord yes and that is one of the unfortunate things of being alive today <laughs> because we don't necessarily have all the answers as to how certain things were being performed but we have learnt a lot and especially um, uh, what springs to mind now and I will uh, take us back to Handel and, and Rome and his arrival in, in Italy but uh, Corelli Arcangelo Corelli uh, we know uh, used other instruments than those that we find annotated, obviously, in the, in the manuscripts uh, in his performances of things like his Concerti Grossi, his Opus 6, which has 12 Concerto Grossos um, in, in that particular work. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a really interesting case with Corelli because uh, his um, sonatas and the concertos are all written for strings and there's only one piece that we know of which is reasonably, uh, plausibly, um, can be confirmed as being written for the trumpet. However, he grew up in, uh, he had his, his early musical training in Bologna 
and that was a the, the Church of San Petronio of Bologna was the the church uh, which with which was associated the music school where Corelli was trained. And so rather similar to what was happening in Germany, in Italy as well, although it was uh, Catholic, of course, rather than the Protestant system in, in Germany. Nevertheless, most musicians were trained through schools associated with the church. And uh, this is what Corelli did in Bologna. It, uh, Bologna is interesting because it was the seat of the f- world's first university. So it was really an intellectual kind of hotbed um, and... Uh, that there's a whole whole lot to, to talk about in, in relation to that. But uh, with Corelli's training there, um, we know that it was a centre not only of string playing but also of trumpet playing. And so uh, he would have had experience certainly of, of trumpets in Bologna and uh, how much he actually used trumpets and wrote for them in Rome is hard to know. But there are certainly some sounds in the way that he writes the uh, Contrati Grossi, which remind us of the kinds of figuration, the kinds of melodies that trumpets would play. Mm. And so if you didn't have a trumpet, then the violins are essentially imitating a trumpet. And if you did have a trumpet available, it would make sense to to add one in. Or indeed an oboe, which could also kind of imitate a trumpet as well. Now, with the Concerti Grossi, are there specific ones that you think um, out of that particular collection, his Opus 6, that match this uh, this um, assertion that we have about the use of trumpets? Well, certainly uh, number four that we're going to hear in this this um, program does uh, have that kind of trumpety effect in it. If we just listen to the opening of that, we can hear the, the way the kind of grand opening suggests a, a sort of uh, slow, impressive trumpet fanfare. In fact, uh, Alan, I found a fabulous recording that I'm going to just uh, play now of that particular movement by Harmonie Universelle, where they have done exactly what you've said. They <laughs> they have included trumpets, baroque trumpets and sackbuts, and uh, I just think the grandeur of this opening, followed by obviously the the faster uh, movement, it's just fabulous to hear. kind of very flashy stuff for the violins there it's hard for trumpets to do but really good trumpeters could play that kind of, of music as well so it allows us to get the the kind of contrast between the full orchestra reinforced by the trumpets and the solo group that we heard uh, just uh, at the beginning of that really fast section yes so uh, this is obviously the adagio followed by the allegro that we're, we're hearing by Harmonie Universelle and I was speaking with Kiel Cooper who's our uh, one of our sackbut players that plays regularly with the Brandenburg earlier 
And he played actually with this group in the live performances from the, the same album that was recorded and was telling me that um, all of this came out of essentially rehearsal and orchestration that they did on, on the fly throughout rehearsal um, where they wanted to showcase the Baroque trumpet and they wanted to showcase the, the sackbuts and have it uh, work in harmony with essentially what we are normally used to hearing with these, these concerto, concerti grossi and the strings obviously leading the way. Yeah, and uh, for those who, who are not familiar, the sackbut is just the Baroque trombone. In fact, it's the instrument, the trombone is the instrument that's changed the least from the Middle Ages up to the present. It's essentially just a trombone, but made of uh, um, rather heavier materials than the modern ones are. Um, so, of course, the trombones go perfectly with trumpets, um, and they were used in this period uh, more in church music than in anything else. In fact, you very rarely get trombones in any kind of orchestral music, but they were used to some extent in churches to reinforce the voices. Uh, typically not with trumpets on the upper parts, but with cornetti, which are those um, strange kind of hybrid instruments somewhere between a brass and a, and a wind uh, instrument. Um, which So they would accompany the upper voices, sackbuts would accompany the lower voices. But when you are using trumpets in this kind of context, then it makes sense to have a sackbut to reinforce the bass because they can make this kind of forceful, uh, sonorous kind of sound that goes very well with the trumpets. Um, it also is a reminder that a lot of Corelli's music was for use in in church one way or another, including possibly some of the concertos uh, in the way that Vivaldi also wrote many of his concertos for use in church. Uh, in Italian churches um, during this period, uh, in, and in Catholic worship more generally, there was not very much participation by the congregation. You essentially went in there and, and sat through the uh, service, which was conducted by the clergy out the front. You couldn't often hear even what they were saying as they said the words in Latin. Uh, there were a few responses and things, but for the most part, it was almost like a kind of performance where you simply observed what was going on. They didn't sing hymns or anything the way they did in the Lutheran church, for example. And indeed, when we spoke about Vivaldi's Venice and we spoke about the Pietà, uh, that's exactly how uh, that sort of a, a church was actually funding its its operations, really. They, they had paying uh, <laughs> services in, in a way, or rather uh, they had services where people were so th enthralled by the music that uh, that they were more than happy uh, to leave some, some some money for the church. That's right. And to, yes, in that case, to support the upkeep of the uh, young women of the, the institution. Um, and so uh, there, the, the point of that being to say that there were many occasions in uh, particularly the larger um, services of the Catholic Church where there would be not much going on uh, for to keep people interested. And so there's a tension between, uh, on the one hand, the church wanting to get people in to, to come and uh, be part of, of worship and therefore making it more interesting by putting on grand music, which people would come to hear. Uh, the Pope eventually got uh, kind of fed up with this because people were coming to church only to hear the music and not paying much attention to the to the actual church service. But yes. uh, <laughs> um, it does explain why so much of this elaborate music was also used in church as well as in um, uh, in other kinds of performances. Bear in mind too that there, at this time there are no public concerts in the way that we get used to seeing them in the later 18th century and, and into the 19th century. Uh, 
the the place where this kind of elaborate music would be performed, if not in church, was in the homes of the aristocracy and at, at kind of special events to celebrate um, royal birthdays and that kind of thing. Uh, so there were outdoor performances sometimes, particularly in Rome. There were some very grand outdoor performances involving sometimes hundreds of musicians on very special occasions. Um, and so we can't be sure for what kind of occasion these sorts of pieces by Corelli were originally composed. But having said that, the uh, Corelli was the first um, musician really to be famous as much through publication as through performance. Uh, he um, polished his compositions over a long period. Some of them were only published after his death, but he had uh, prepared those editions really carefully and worked mm. over and over them so that he would be leaving a legacy. And in fact, they did stay in the repertoire in a way that hardly any other Italian music did over a long period. And that's exactly, I mean, it, when we were talking about how often new music was being written and performed, uh, that is a, str- a testament to the quality of what uh, Corelli has actually left us. Exactly, yeah. Um, and it's the first music in a way, of, uh, particularly of, of Italian music, to be considered kind of canonical, to, to become classics that people would play over and over again over a long period of time. And so in, from that point of view, we can say that this kind of music is, uh, is music for which there is no one correct way of doing it, in the sense that we can't look back and say, when it was originally done, it was performed in this way with this many musicians in this kind of environment, whereas there are many other pieces we could say, yes, it was performed on this particular occasion in this church with this many musicians and, and so on. We can know exactly how it was done. But for these concerti grossi, uh, they were probably done in many different ways in many different places. And I think it's fair to say it's easy to imagine how this sort of concerto grosso could be performed even outdoors with the the prominent sound of trumpets and, and sackbuts supporting the strings. Yeah, it just if has you were that doing it uh, indoors, um, having all those trumpets and things would, would probably be a bit much. But if you're outdoors, absolutely, yes, you do want that kind of carrying sound. Mm. Um, and and I think uh, we've talked about concerto and concerto grosso, but we haven't really uh, given a little bit of an idea to the listeners of what exactly these terms mean. Maybe you can just go back to the basics and, and let us know. So what is the difference between, say, a concerto grosso and a concerto? Okay, so In the uh, 17th century and into the 18th century, the word concerto simply meant a piece with multiple different parts, uh, which could be voices and or instruments. Um, So it covered a whole lot of different kinds of piece. Um, When we get uh, towards the end of the 17th century, just the period we're talking about here and into the beginning of the 18th, the term starts to, to be narrowed down to something closer to its modern meaning. Um, I guess the kinds of concertos that most people are used to from, say, the 19th and 20th centuries would be things like Mozart's piano concertos, Beethoven's violin concerto, and so on. And in those, we're very used to the idea that a concerto is essentially a solo for one instrument accompanied by an orchestra. And that's the kind of model that uh, Vivaldi particularly established in Venice in the early part of the 18th century. And that's the model that Brescianello's concerto very much follows that we're going to hear today. Now, I'm glad you bring up Brescianello's name. You're very clever at this, uh, Alan. It's, it's such, such a joy to, to, to be talking with you again. And uh, this particular concerto is one of three that Brescianello wrote in C major. It hasn't really seen as much prominence as someone like Vivaldi's music obviously obviously has. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about Brescianello's story and, and where he comes uh, from and, and where he sits in the context of, of these musicians working and living in Italy. 
Okay, so Brescianello also trained in Bologna, but we don't know much else about the early part of his life. Interestingly, um, my colleague, uh, Professor Sam- Samantha Owens at Auckland Uni, is actually one of the world experts on Brescianello, and uh, because where he finished up was in Stuttgart at the court of Württemberg, and that's what she's written her, her PhD and some books and so forth about. And um, so Sam discovered a bit more about Brescianello's career. Uh, but it was a period in which uh, lots of of Italian musicians uh, moved outside Italy and um, so there were many Italian musicians who were prominent particularly at the the many small German courts and uh, so Brescianetto um, established himself in uh, Stuttgart and was the director of music there for many years. Um, Sam has written, uh, Samantha, Samantha Owens has written uh, some very entertaining articles about the fights there were between the Italian and German musicians of the court and how the Germans were always really annoyed that these interlopers were coming in from the outside and Catholics to boot uh, <laughs> who were, well, who were it's, kind it's, of taking over their 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 jobs so there was this this kind of sense of you know who are these foreigners coming in and taking it's still the same argument i mean none of it's changed (laughs) yeah uh and so um brescianello uh is uh, one of these many italian musicians who were prized because they brought with them the the latest most fashionable italian style uh they were trained in the kind of style that vivaldi made famous and so that's the kind of thing that brescianello brings Mm. Um, for germans they could kind of learn to do that but they had to go and mostly they had to travel to italy really to learn how to do it properly or they had to get hold of lots of italian music and study it really hard and indeed we'll talk about that with uh, Handel because that's exactly where where this is going so maybe now tell us a little bit about this concerto in c major for violin what sort of uh what for you is this reminiscent of uh, it's certainly reminiscent of the style of Vivaldi because that's uh, what had, had become famous in this period as being the kind of definitive style of, of Italian concerto. Uh, so we're talking here about a period a bit later than the Corelli. Um, so Corelli's concerto is probably written in the 1680s or so, although they weren't published until a bit later. Um, but uh, Vivaldi in the uh, 17. Uh, 10s or 20s is making the solo concerto style really uh, popular and he did this by consolidating a particular way of composing which was ritornello form. Ritornello essentially just means a refrain and so it's a, a structure which was used in most of the fast movements of Vivaldi's concertos and which we also hear in the Brescianello in which uh, it's a really clever piece a way of organizing the music because it is uh, on the face of it, very simple, but it's also infinitely flexible. What happens is the orchestra starts in and plays the main melody and, and, and accompanying harmony and kind of sets it out as the almost like the chorus that keeps coming back. And then the soloist takes off from that with some related material, plays a, a solo episode, just lightly accompanied by the orchestra, and then the full orchestra comes back in with the refrain. But the clever part is that each time it comes back, the refrain is not exactly the same. It is made up of a few little modules which, which can be kind of mixed and matched in different ways so that it reminds you of what you heard before. It feels like it kind of goes, it hangs together, but it's not just a straight repeat. So there's always something interesting to listen to. And the other thing is that in the solo episodes, it tends to modulate. It moves on into a different key area so that there's a kind of a feeling of a cycle. It moves through different keys that keep us interested, keep us thinking, oh, where's it going now? Until eventually it cycles back into the home key, the tonic. Uh, And we feel like, ah, we've arrived back and we hear the, the 
the refrain one more time and we know that we've arrived. And so it's a very satisfying um, kind of coherent mm. form. The great thing, though, is that uh, it can be infinitely varied. Um, a few years ago, two scholars who work on this um, did a, a huge study in which they examined something like a thousand of these fast movements from the 18th century of violin concertos, trying to work out what's the pattern, what's the basic uh, pattern that all of these follow. You know, is there a fundamental thing where you start in the tonic and then you go to the the dominant and then the subdominant or whatever to these different key areas? Um, are there different kinds of patterns that the soloist uses or whatever. Sounds like almost a reductionist Schenkerian analysis <laughs> on, on the form. <laughs> but the thing is, the interesting thing they found was after studying something like a thousand different movements was there's no pattern. <laughs> <laughs> Beyond the basic structure, every one of them is different because this, and this is what allowed somebody like Vivaldi to compose so fast because he had this very reliable uh, kind of easily usable pattern, but every time he did it, he could do something new different and, and original. And so Brescianello is working within that structure, which essentially Vivaldi has established and made popular and famous, again through publication, interestingly. Like Corelli, uh, Vivaldi probably actually seeing the success of, of Corelli's publications, thought, aha, this is how I can make a name for myself. I'll get some of these concertos published. Um, and interestingly, published not in Italy, not in Venice, which had its own publishing industry, but in Amsterdam, where they had cutting-edge technology engraving, which uh, produced beautiful uh, scores, and then they were sold all over Northern Europe. And so Vivaldi's name was spread all over the place, and people, including famously J.S. Bach, got hold of copies of this music and could study it and figure out how does it work and then imitate the style. And so, in a way, we can see this kind of circulating around, and that's the environment in which Brescianello is also writing concertos of this type. So let's have a listen to the opening movement of the Concerto in C Major. Here it's the La Folia Baroque Orchestra on their album Violin Concertos. soloist indeed we heard a lovely refrain just as you you, um, you know, spoke to us about and now we've got this episode that you were talking about with the soloist delivering other material and taking us to a slightly different place yeah and so the soloist kind of takes off from the material using essentially the, the melodic material that's been set out in the ritornello at the beginning uh, but kind of building on it and and going off in a new direction and that's also what allows it to move in key area into a new uh, in a new direction uh, so that it keeps us interested all the time it feels sort of familiar because we've getting used to hearing the tune but at the same time we're always thinking oh where's it going now uh, what's he think, thinking of next um, so that's the kind of brilliance of, of this form and these uh, violin patterns that we're hearing um, this this sort of leaping in the uh, violin solo part is very reminiscent for me of a lot of Vivaldi's music that's right yeah and it's uh, it's what we 
describe as idiomatic style, idiomatic to the violin, in that it's the sort of thing that violins do really well, but which you could imagine would be really, really difficult to sing, for example. <laughs> so in the 17th century, the uh, idea had always been that the greatest aspiration of an instrumental player was to make their instrument sound like a voice. Uh, so they're going essentially for a sort of lyrical style um, in which you would make the violin or indeed the keyboard or the oboe or whatever it was um, sound uh, as much as possible like a voice. But in this period, this is where we're really getting from the late... 17th century onwards and particularly into the first part of the 18th the rise of instrumental virtuosity of a kind that had not really been heard before where uh, particularly violinists are doing this kind of very flashy stuff where on the violin you can do it by just crossing over strings you can go from a low string to a high string just by moving the bow across uh, and that means that you can do these sort of wide leaps and things very easily and your fingers can run up and down the fingerboard uh, and it sounds very spectacular in a way that uh, that voices find really difficult to do. Now, having said that, one of the consequences is that from the 1720s onwards, opera singers now have to learn how to try and copy what violinists are doing, and the shoe is on the other foot. So this is where we get the, the era of uh, enormous vocal virtuosity of the great uh, singers like Farinelli and so forth, who are, in a way, imitating instruments. Um, so it, it's turned around the other way. Before we go on to singers and all of that vocal spectacular that um, is also prominent in uh, Handel's Digsit Dominus, uh, I'd like to uh, take us to uh, Handel as a 22-year-old uh, travelling to Italy for the first time. Uh, what sort of city would have he discovered um, upon arriving in Rome? And, and how was Rome different at that time uh, to the Rome that we know and love now? Yeah. Uh, let's go back even just one step before that, because uh, I was saying before how Handel had um, had his his training, he went to school in Halle. Uh, the big difference between Handel and Bach, um, although they had very similar kind of training, was that Bach decided to stay in central Germany and he worked in the, the kind of traditional occupations that musicians there had, which was a combination of working for the church and working for the aristocracy and the the royal courts. Uh, Handel chooses a different kind of career. He's doing something very modern, which is that he wants to work in opera. And so there are no um, public opera houses in Germany except in Hamburg. So he moves up to Hamburg at the age of 18, uh, plays in the theatre orchestra there, and um, so he gets to hear what uh, this Italian style of music is like, even though some of the operas they were doing were by uh, the local house composer Reinhard Kaiser, uh, who wrote in a mixture of Italian and German. Uh, Italian was thought to be the better language to sing in, and so they would have the arias in Italian, but the recitatives, which kind of give us the dialogue in between were yes, done in German points. so that you could follow <laughs> the story. So a funny kind of mixture. But anyway, Handel gets that experience. He meets other um, notable musicians, including uh, the theorist Johann Matheson, who was the same age, who also played in the orchestra and was a, a, a young composer. Um, and the, there's a great story about how… Um, yes, Mat please do, Alan. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you're going to talk about. Um, Matheson had, had composed an opera and uh, he was also singing in it himself. And uh, so… Matteson, as a, a young guy who's uh, very, uh, I think, um, assured in his own abilities and so forth. And so he'd written the, the opera so that his character, uh, I think, died at the, the end of the first act or something. And then, so he decided that uh, after his character had died, he then wanted to come in down and lead the orchestra <laughs> for, the, for the next act. And Handel, who was, uh, who was leading the orchestra, um, was not pleased about this at all. He didn't want to be pushed out <laughs> by Matteson just uh, because he'd finished his singing part. So they, they actually nearly fought a duel over this. 
but uh, in the end, it was resolved. And, but um, so Handel gets his experience there. And, but the only way, really, to to be a serious opera composer and to really get the experience he needed was to go to Italy. And mm. so he had been heard in Hamburg by um, the uh, f- the future Grand Duke of Tuscany, the, the Prince of, of Tuscany, who was passing through on his grand tour um, and invited Handel to go to Rome. Handel decided not to go as a member of uh, the Prince's entourage to go to Italy, but instead, uh, I guess it, it kind of confirmed to him the idea that he really needed to go. And so uh, he got his own funds together and travelled to Italy in 1706, uh, um, uh, as a, when he was in his early 20s. So, to, to answer your question, what kind of a place did he find there? Well, it would have been, I think, a huge culture shock to somebody who came from Protestant central Germany where um, the, the kind of culture was rather more um, kind of dour, I guess we would say, um, more subdued, more kind of, uh, um, more con- kind of controlled environment, we might uh, say these days, I suppose, uh, whereas in Italy was pretty exuberant. Uh, now, in Rome, uh, it was, of course, the seat of the church, and so there's this atmosphere of kind of, of seriousness about it in a way. But they have carnival where uh, they would have street parades and uh, musicians and dances and theatre going on in the streets. Uh, he would have seen Commedia dell'arte performances, uh, so improvised theatre on s- uh, stages just set up in, in the town squares and that kind of thing. Uh, so very exciting for a young man to go and, and hear all of this. And of course, as a musician, he gets uh, entree to some of the houses of the leading aristocracy. And this is, of course, where the real action is, because most music is not happening in public, it happens in private. In Rome, also, there are, I mean, Rome, in a way, is a funny place to be for somebody who aspires to be an opera composer, because there are no public opera houses. Uh, the Pope considered, and, and this changed a little bit from time to time in, with successive Popes, but generally speaking, the Popes frowned on the theatre as being a little bit immoral. And so they didn't generally allow public theatres to open in Rome. However, some of the aristocracy in Rome, who incidentally were the cardinals, so the princes of the church, but uh, they uh, ironically had their own private theatres. Yes, no one sees any double standards there. I mean, that's just... (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could read in the program notes for the the concert some of the uh, wonderful descriptions of Cardinal Otto Borni, for example, uh, who who was um, one of these uh, leading aristocrats uh, who was a cardinal of the church, but also lived uh, quite a, um, a, a, he, he lived large, we might say. Uh, and he had built in his uh, palace, the Palazzo della Cancelleria, uh, had his own private theatre built. We still have the plans for it today, which show the, the sight lines and how it was all set up so that he, from his royal box, as it were, in the theatre, he would have the perfect view of the stage and, and all of that. Uh, so he puts on his own operas. And during Lent, in the period when operas were not performed anywhere, in the period leading up to Easter, they would perform oratorios as well. So they're effectively kind of like unstaged operas. So the same kind of music. And so Handel is introduced into this environment. He is commissioned to compose both church music and theatrical style music for these uh, these great aristocratic um, patrons. Now talk to me a little bit about Digsit Dominus and uh, where this music comes from and, and what it's all about. Okay, so it comes from uh, Handel's time in Rome in 1707. Uh, we don't know exactly for what occasion it was written or, or who the patron was, though the scholars have some guesses around that. It was written in April of 1707, so quite likely for uh, Easter of that 
uh, of that year. It could have been performed on Easter Sunday. That would kind of make sense. And it was probably commissioned for a significant um, church event, so not just the, the ordinary Easter Sunday service, but for a particular um, occasion, maybe of a religious order is one of the, the possible um, uh, interpretations of, of what it may have been for, but we actually just don't know for sure. Um, so uh, it's clearly, though, a very substantial piece, um, one that uh, would have been performed. Now, um, the, the text of it is a psalm, um, and uh, it was the first psalm performed in the Vespers service. So Vespers is the evening service in the cycle of, of services that go around the, the day in the uh, monastic calendar. So you have Mass on a Sunday, which is the normal church service on a Sunday morning or or sometimes a Saturday evening, um, but in monastic communities, so monks and nuns would be doing uh, a whole series of other short services which they did um, right throughout the day and into the evening. And in that sequence, the which is known as the office, uh, Vespers is the, the substantial evening service. So this is done every day, but uh, you would have special Vespers services for particular uh, feast days and important occasions. For one of those kinds of services, um, you would do a substantial setting of a psalm like this. And uh, this is a really uh, on a quite a grand scale because it's divided up into eight movements. And so the whole thing, kind of like um, for listeners who are familiar with Vivaldi's Gloria, uh, it's the same kind of idea where you take something which is a fairly long text in itself and would often be, if it was sung in Gregorian chant, you would just sing the chant melody and it would take two or three or four minutes. Um, but if you turn it into uh, a whole concerted piece with a whole with choir and orchestra and soloists and all of that, it can extend out to half an hour because mm. you take every couple of lines and turn that into a separate movement, a separate chorus or uh, aria or duet. And often each with their own key or mood. It's, it's fascinating how this particular work, um, even for a young composer, has such breadth and uh, depth. That's right, yeah. And it is striking that for somebody who was so young and still pretty new in Italy, how he's been able to take on the style. And I think we do hear in this this kind of mixing of his uh, German training with uh, his adaptation to what was fashionable and, and up-to-date in Italy. Um, it's interesting because for him as a Protestant uh, composer trained in a different kind of uh, religious Service. environment. Mm. Um, he has to then adapt to what's expected in the Catholic Church as well, and he does that so effectively to make this a very, a very powerful piece. Um, and he does what uh, Baroque composers had been doing for a, a century or so, which was to look carefully at the words and see what mood they convey, and to, to pick out particular words sometimes, or at least particular concepts. So uh, it can be either an individual word that you illustrate or a, a kind of a whole phrase, uh, a concept that, that can be illustrated with a musical idea. And that becomes the kind of theme for that particular movement. So just uh, for those couple of lines of words may suggest um, an idea of, uh, for example, anger or fear or happiness or whatever. And that's what can be illustrated in those particular that particular movement. Here is the 2008 recording of Digsit Dominus recorded at the City Recital Hall with Paul Dyer and the fabulous Brandenburg Choir and Australian Brandenburg Orchestra.
It's a thrilling place, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is indeed. <laughs> and it's exciting because the words are, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's <laughs> so that kind of power. We get, we get the image of, of God sitting up on high with, with Christ at his right hand and, and the, the powers of the world being, being uh, kind of uh, um, held down below. And it's kind of about the, the kingship of God, that particular image of, of God as the mighty ruler. And, uh, and so you can really hear that in that sort of uh, exciting opening with uh, the big chords and, and then this um, wonderful, fast, uh, imitative writing, which I think is, is Handel showing off his German training as well. And something, uh, there's something in the, the sound of the, the, the X in Digzit and the way that it, it just projects the, uh, the, the essentially the, the, the words and it's almost word painting just on that syllable, just on that sound. Yes, because the word dixit is said. Yeah. <laughs> yes, said. <laughs> so the, the, the kind of the word order in Latin, of course, is um, uh, said the Lord to my Lord. <laughs> yes. Um, and so we get this dixit at the beginning. Yes. And so the articulation of that, yes, is uh, it really makes it kind of take off and it almost spit out. Uh, the um, the idea of the, the, the power of God. And uh, another thing uh, that Handel does throughout uh, a lot of his works is this this use of long-held notes with uh, increasing activity underneath it. And, and, and you can hear him going from uh, one key to another and, and it's getting more and more exciting and building as, it, as obviously it progresses through this movement. Is th- this, for me, feels very operatic. It, it's not just ah. limited to, uh, to something that maybe people would assume would have been performed in church. Yeah, um, the, the melodic writing is not particularly operatic and that feature that you pointed out of having the long-held notes with a lot of activity underneath, what he's doing there actually is building in a cantus firmus. It's taking the chant melody, so this was originally would have been just sung in very ordinary Gregorian chant, but the notes of the Gregorian chant can be taken out and held out really long, each individual note sustained for a long period. So the sopranos can sing the, the, essentially the chant melody very, very, very slowly uh, while uh, a whole lot of other activity goes on behind it. Now that's a, a technique that goes right back to the Middle Ages. It was one of the first ways in which musicians who wanted to kind of elaborate their church music worked out ways of doing that, but right back in the 11th century they, they started to do that. Um, and uh, so that was something that we hear also in Bach and in other German composers. So maybe there's there's something of that going in there. Um, so he's able to put together, he's saying, I, I hear you, you're Catholic, and this is the, the Catholic Gregorian chant melody. Um, and yet we can also write in this very kind of complicated structure. What is operatic about it, I think, is is not so much the, the melodic writing, which in, in opera we'd expect to just have a, a solo line. Uh, we do hear a bit of that kind of um, flashy solo from the soprano, uh, but it's more the, the kind of harmonic intensity, I think, the way that the rhythm drives forward with the harmony sort of drawing us onwards towards a goal. That kind of feeling, I think, is, is quite operatic. 
dramatic and we get a sense of that how Handel is learning to do drama through doing this um, and that's what we hear also in his operas later on. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today, Alan. Obviously, uh, Handel uh, is always such a great inspiration. And again, Digs at Dominus, it will be a fantastic event for the first concert series in 2021. And isn't it fantastic to be back in the concert hall with live music, and oh. particularly with vocal music, which we haven't been able to have for so long. And thank you for joining us. This has been Tales of Baroque with Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology of the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music, and your host, Huron Zani from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. <laughs>